Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast number three. Today we are jumping into the book of John chapter three. The title for this series is called, Who Do You Believe? And today, Pastor Roy will be talking about authentic faith. Here's Pastor Roy from John chapter three, verses 16 to 36. Uh, If you open your Bibles to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. I've entitled the message today, Authentic Faith. Authentic Faith. John chapter 3, we kind of talked a little bit about verse 16 last week, but I want to pick back up with it because there's so much there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son." This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can only receive what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am set ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There was an embarrassed woman who met the pastor at the door at the end of the service. And she said to the pastor, Oh, she said, I hope you didn't take it personally, pastor, that uh, my husband got up and walked out on your sermon. He said, well, I did find it rather disconcerting, but she said, it's not a reflection on you, sir. Believe me, she said, Arthur has been walking in his sleep for years. So I hope that uh, nobody comes out of here walking on their sleep this morning. 
um, and your attention will be held as we talk about authentic faith. This text reveals three habits that are evident in the life of a believer who possesses authentic faith. I believe John talks about two different kinds of faith in his gospel. He uses the word believe 98 times in his gospel. So you kind of get the idea what he's writing about. He wants people to believe. He wants people to believe in Jesus. That's why we've called this whole series, Who Do You Believe? What's interesting is when you look at the original language, the word translated for believe is always a verb and not a noun. To show that the believing is active, it is living, it is abiding in Christ. That's what it means to have a, an authentic faith. It means a faith that is real, a faith that is genuine, a faith that is active, a faith that is living, a faith that is abiding in Jesus Christ. That's what John's talking about here. Versus a transitory faith. You say, now you're using big words on me. I know I had to look it up myself. <laughs> transitory faith is what I call titanic faith. You say, what is titanic faith? I'm glad you asked. Titanic faith is a faith that is temporary. Remember when the Titanic sunk? If you watched the movie, there was a Hollywood version of it. But when it sunk, there was a priest on the Titanic who began quoting from Revelation chapter 21. I found that interesting. Whether or not that's historically accurate, who knows? But all I know is probably if we were able to go back and interview people that were sinking on the Titanic, many of them may be prayed for the first time in their life. That's a transitory faith where you put a temporary faith that is short-lived, that is brief, that is non-permanent faith. And John addresses both in this book in this gospel. And so he is telling us that if we are going to have a relationship with Jesus, we need to have an authentic faith, one that is genuine, one that is real, one that is active, one that is alive, one that is abiding in Jesus Christ and not have a titanic faith, a genuine faith. So he gives us three habits that should be evident in the life of a believer who possesses authentic faith. Habit number one, exercising confidence in Jesus Christ. Notice he says, actually, if we even go back to verse 15, that everyone who believes in who? Him, Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus may have eternal life. Look in verse 16, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus. Look in verse 18, whoever believes in him, in Jesus. To have a belief in Jesus Christ means I have a confidence in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. What he did by coming in the flesh and giving his life and raising on the third day, I have confidence in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he did for me. So our confidence is based on trust, 
That's what faith is. It is putting my confidence, it is putting my trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in the character of God. We learn about the character of God as we open the pages of Scripture. God tells us who He is. And God does not lie. He fulfills every promise that He's made. Or will fulfill it, as some are yet to come to pass. God's character is expressed in his love. And notice in verse 16, for God so loved the world. And last week we talked about that. God loved an ungodly world because we were all ungodly. The Bible says God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us while we were sinners, while we were alienated, separated from God, haters of God. Jesus Christ died for us. And that's the character that we see expressed in God's love. Man's rebellion against God's command in the garden not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2.17 tells us that. And so God tells us, and so when man sinned, God enacted a plan of rescue and redemption in the person of Jesus. And he says, God so loved the world that he gave. The initiation was not us crying out to God saying, God, bring us a savior. Bring somebody who will rescue me. Bring someone who will deliver me from my sin. We didn't even have a plan. God had the plan. He initiated the plan. God so loved the world that he gave. And we looked at this last week. And we're going to look at it a little bit further. But right before we do that, listen to these words in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might, listen, live through him. Our life is in Jesus Christ. My activity, my involvement, my behavior is in Jesus Christ. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. This is love, he says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God provided a way for man to be delivered from his sin. And many people yet reject the offer of salvation of Jesus' death on the cross as payment for their sin. Say, God, I hear that, but I'll do it my way. I'll do good things. I'll, I'll gain entrance into heaven in my way. I'll give money to the church. I'll help the poor. I'll feed the hungry. I'll be a good person. I won't swear. I won't drink. I, that's not going to get you in. Jesus' death is what gets us in. His payment for sin because he hated it so much. Transitory faith will not gain entrance into heaven because it's a temporary faith and a temporary faith will not do it. A temporary faith will not get us through difficult situations either. If you flip over in John chapter 6 just for a moment, let me show you temporary faith. John chapter 6, look in verse 60. Jesus had done some teaching And it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus has some very hard things to say in scripture about how a believer should live. And many people will follow Jesus to a point. They have a transitory faith that says, yes, temporarily, I will follow Jesus. 
until he tells me that I should tithe and give 10% of my money to the church. Oh, wait a minute. I'm checking out. I didn't know that was part of the deal. Read the scripture. (laughs) That's what the scripture says. There are many other things that Jesus tells us that we should do. But he goes down to say, look down in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? He started saying some hard things that they did not want to hear. And they didn't want to follow it. And there are a lot of people who say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus as long as he loves me and everything's going smoothly in my life. And as soon as difficulty comes in, I'm checking out. I'm throwing in the towel on my faith because God did not come through. I have met people who embrace atheism because God let them down. Maybe God was trying to teach them something and teach us something. Transitory faith will not sustain us. Authentic faith abiding in Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 8 for a minute in verse 31. Here's what authentic faith does. Authentic faith holds to the teaching of Jesus. Notice down in verse 31. Oh, I got to flip over there myself. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Notice he says the Jews had believed him, but what he's saying is make sure that your faith is not transitory, that it's a titanic faith that only cries out to God when the ship is going down. There are some people when they're bobbing up and down on the sea of life and they're sucking air and they're sucking water and they're about to drown and they're about to go down for the last time, Jesus, I need you. And then as soon as their feet get to dry land, Jesus, I don't need you. I only need you when I need you. And I'm sorry, but God doesn't operate that way. He wants all of us all of the time, and he wants us to want all of him all of the time. That is authentic faith. If we go over to John chapter 15, we see it again. And it's interesting, actually, if you look in the... Uh, this is the NIV I'm using, but if you use the ESV, where it says in John 8:31, if you hold to my teaching, the word actually says, if you abide in my word. And then if you go over to John chapter 15, verse 4, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. And what he's saying here is the idea of abiding in Jesus. Because someone who has an authentic faith will abide in Jesus, and somebody who has a transitory faith, a titanic faith, will not abide in Jesus. And he's saying there's a difference. Which kind of faith are you embracing this morning? Are you embracing an authentic faith in Jesus, or are you embracing a transitory faith in Jesus? I think about the little boy, he was waiting for his mother to come out of the grocery store. And as he waited, he was approached by a man. The man said, son, can you tell me where the post office is? And the little boy said, sure. He said, you just go straight down that street a couple of blocks and turn to the right. And it's right there. And the man thanked the boy kindly. And he said, you know, I'm the new pastor in town. He says, I would like you to come to church this Sunday. And he says, I'll show you how to get to heaven. The little boy said, ah, come on. He says, you don't even know how to get to the post office. (laughs) 
And yet, God has showed us how to get to heaven, especially in John 3.16. Has he not? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We talked last week about God loving the world because God's love is universal. He loves every skin color. He loves every sinner. He loves every person who shakes their fist at God, who has spit in the face of Jesus. He loves them all. And his desire is that all men would come to repentance and salvation. His love is universal. Secondly, his love is sacrificial. We talked about that he gave. He gave his son to be born of a virgin. And he also gave his son to die on the cross. That's a sacrificial love. He gave the best that heaven had his one and only son. Thirdly, God's love is special. His one and only son. It says he gave his one and only son. Down at the end of verse 18, in the name of God's one and only son. And last week we looked at some other passages back in John chapter 1 that talked about his one and only son. It's a special love. It's a supernatural love that God loved us with. There was nothing in us that caused, should have caused God to love us at all. And he did. If we could comprehend John 3.16, we could live a long time on that verse. Fourthly, God's love is individual. Notice he says that whoever believes in him. It is an individual love. There are 7 billion people on the face of the globe. I haven't looked at the number recently, but I know it's 7 billion people. And God loves every single one of the 7 billion people. And if I would have been the only person on the face of the earth, or you would have been the only person on the face of the earth, Jesus Christ would have died for you (laughs) or for me. It's individual. But we have a responsibility to put our faith and trust in Jesus ourselves. Nobody else can do it for you. Mom and dad can't do it for you. Grandma and grandma can't do it for you. Aunt and uncle can't do it for you. School teacher can't do it for you. Sunday school teacher can't do it for you. We have to accept Jesus Christ ourselves individually. Fifthly, God's love is essential. Notice he says, whoever believes in him, what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is essential that you and I receive the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of God for our sin. Otherwise, we perish. He says, shall not perish. The word perish here means to be lost. You hear me use that term a lot because that's what it means. To be lost, to destroy, utterly to be cut off from God and his presence, his love, his grace, his mercy. We are cut off forever in a place the Bible calls hell. You say, you're trying to scare me. No, I'm trying to tell you the truth. (laughs) The truth. So God provided that for us. Perishing without hope, facing judgment, being condemned, 
suffering separation from God, experiencing all that hell is. That is serious to me when you read the description of hell. When the Spirit of God is removed and God's wrath is unleashed, that to me is very serious. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ, I invite you, I implore you, I beg you to give your life to Christ. John 5.24 says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him, there's that word again, believes him, believes Jesus, who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now we looked at God's character expressed through his love. Next, we want to look at God's character expressed in his names. His character is revealed through his activity and his involvement in our lives. God initiated a plan of salvation, but I just want to briefly mention a couple things that talk about God's name. In Genesis twenty-two fourteen, that's the story of Abraham taking up Isaac to sacrifice, and it says, the Lord will provide. In that whole story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, and then the ram caught in the thicket, God provided a sacrifice, was a picture that one day God would provide the sacrifice in the Lamb of God that we're studying in the Gospel of John. And he did. Secondly, in Exodus fifteen twenty six, the Lord who heals you. Exodus seventeen five, the Lord is my banner. This title emphasizes that God is like a warrior who champions his people's cause. God fights on our behalf. He gives us spiritual armor to equip us for the spiritual battle because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The Bible says we wrestle against principalities, against spiritual wickedness, spiritual forces of evil we wrestle against. In Psalm 95, 6, it says, The Lord our maker. This does not refer to his original creation, but to the way God is fashioning a people for himself. We trust in God's character because of his love and his names. We also trust in the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is back in Genesis 15. He established a covenant with Abraham. And he had Abraham cut pieces of an animal and he laid the pieces out some on this side some on this side and the bible says a flaming torch passed between the pieces and the flaming torch was god himself establishing a covenant with abraham and we are recipients of that covenant as believers in jesus and part of that covenant was that god would rescue his people and he does that in the person of jesus he fulfills that covenant Relationship. We can trust in this faithful God who provided an atoning sacrifice for sin in the person of Jesus. Secondly, our confidence grows not only based on trust, but our confidence grows through our experience. I mentioned a moment ago about Abraham. And actually in Hebrews 11.8, it says, He obeyed God's call even though he did not know where he was going. Listen to that. He obeyed God's call even though he didn't know where he was going. 
That is significant. How many of you like to start off somewhere and you like to have an idea where you're going? (laughs) I do. I like to have a plan. I like to have the map or a GPS if I don't know where I'm going. So I know where I'm going and I don't waste time. I hate to get lost. And my wife will tell you that because we've been lost a time or two. And I don't like it. It's a waste of time. But he went not knowing where he was going. He obeyed God because he trusted God's character. And his experience taught him that God was trustworthy. In Hebrews 11.9, it says, By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. He now begins to reside in a place. Why? Not only a place that God led him to, but he says, I'm staying there. Why? Because I have authentic faith, not transitory faith. Not titanic faith. I have authentic faith to follow through on what God said. Abraham, it says in Hebrews eleven eleven, considered God to be faithful who made the promise. You see, perhaps my obedience is a reflection more on the character of God than I realize. Sometimes we think that our obedience is only a reflection of me and my poor character and my poor faith. But you know what? My lack of obedience is also a reflection on the character of God. Because I'm claiming to be his child and claiming that he has the power to keep me and to cause me to live a righteous life. And when I live a disobedient, ungodly life... It's a reflection on the character of God. And he takes an affront to it. Thirdly, our confidence grows through our perseverance. Moses saw God, the Bible says, who is invisible with the eyes of faith. And that's how God wants us to see him. Not with the visible eye, but with the eyes of faith. See him who is invisible. And it will cause us to persevere. Well, we need to move on. Habit number two. In the life of a believer who has authentic faith. Habit number two. Living by the truth. Absolutely be committed to the word of God in my life. It's a habit. And I strive to honor the Lord. Do I do it perfectly? No. Do you do it perfectly? No, we don't. But we strive, we have an aim, we have a goal, we have a passion that we will meditate, we will study, we will think about, we will reflect on, we will try to behave the way the scripture says. I don't practice deceit. I practice the truth and honor God. But you know what the scripture says? Mankind is naturally drawn to the darkness. In verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The unbeliever is condemned. And I have three reasons why. Number one. Because he is not believed. It's very clear in scripture 
of why a person is condemned. They have not believed in God's Son. It says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, what? Stands condemned already. You will not be condemned at judgment day. That will be the fulfillment of your condemnation. You are condemned right now. The Scripture tells me that. And I need to understand that, that I am separated from God and that separation from God and that sin has condemned me already. I am a condemned man apart from the grace of God. You are a condemned individual apart from the grace of God. Why? Because you have rejected God's Son. The Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. John 3.36, look at the very last verse of this chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. This is the only time in the Gospel of John the word wrath is used. And do you know why I think that's true? Because John was writing a gospel of love, a gospel of hope, He was trying to introduce Jesus for the first time into human history, and he wanted them to have a proper perspective of the heart of God that was for people. Notice it says he did not come into the world to judge or condemn the world. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to save it. He would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What an incredible gospel. But the unbeliever is condemned because he has not believed. Secondly, the unbeliever is condemned because he loves darkness. Notice what it says in verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And that's why they love darkness, because their deeds are evil. And they want the darkness to cover their evilness. They pursue darkness. They practice evil. They're full of pride. They do not want to confess their sin. They deny their need of Christ or salvation. If you take just a moment and flip back to 1 John, just for a moment, or listen carefully. In 1 John, verse 1, beginning in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Is that plain or is that plain? He's saying you need to have an authentic faith, not a titanic faith in Jesus Christ. The third characteristic of an unbeliever who is condemned He is condemned because he hates the light. He refuses to come to the light. Many people who are embracing and loving darkness will never don the doors of a church. Why? Because they're going to hear the word of God preached. And when the word of God is preached, light goes forth and exposes their sin. And they cannot hide. So they stay away from Bible studies, they stay away from Christians, they stay away from any Christian radio or television. They turn it off, they run from it, and they hide because they want to embrace their darkness and they feel comfortable in it. And the minute they're exposed to the light, the comfort level 
dissipates. Because now they've got to deal with their sin before a holy God. Plato said, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. And that's what we have in our society. What do we have? People lashing out against the church. As soon as we take a stand on marriage and different issues of life, what happens? There's a backlash to the church because they don't like to hear about the light. There's a website called The Experience Project. It describes itself as the place to share a, as a place to share life experiences from people like you. As of January 2014, this site had over 36 million visitors. Visitors to the sites are asked to share their thoughts about life experiences by answering these types of questions. What does loneliness feel like? Or, who do you want to spend time with? Or, what is your favorite pastime? In one post, readers were asked to respond to the following statement, I prefer darkness over light. A young woman going by the screen name Beyond Repair offered a particularly honest and insightful response. Here's what she said. I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from what you were and can be what you want. The darkness is bless. Can you imagine? We have a propensity to want to hide. It's our natural inclination. Dallas Willard, who is now in heaven, wrote about a two-and-a-half-year-old girl. In her backyard one day, she discovered the secret to making mud, which she called warm chocolate. Her grandmother had been reading and was facing away from the action, but after cleaning up what was a real mess to her grandmother, she told Larissa not to make any more chocolate and turned her chair around so she could be facing her granddaughter. The little girl soon resumed her warm chocolate routine with one request, sweetly posed, as sweetly as a two-and-a-half-year-old girl could say it, Don't look at me, Nana, okay? Nana, being a little codependent, agreed. Larissa continued to manufacture her warm chocolate. Three times, she said, as she continued to work, Don't look at me, Nana, okay? Then Willard writes, Thus the tender soul of a little child shows us how necessary it is to us that we be unobserved in our wrong." Anytime we choose to do wrong or withhold doing right, we choose hiddenness well. It may be that all of our prayers that are ever spoken, the most common one, the quietest one, or the one we least acknowledge making is simply this, don't look at me, God. It was the very first prayer spoken after the fall, wasn't it? 
God came walking in the garden with man and woman and says, Where are you? Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, so I hid. Don't look at me, God. He goes on to say, imagine a businessman who checks into a hotel. The motel has a policy that states the name of the movie that you rent will not appear on your statement. As he reaches for the remote control, he first fires up a little prayer. Don't look at me, God, okay? Imagine a student taking an exam. The adrenaline's flowing. She's crammed a bunch of facts in her mind. Her head is spinning. The answers are there, but she can't access them, so she looks at a cheat sheet. Her soul is bothered, but she needs answers. Lord, don't look at me, okay? I'll be back with you in the morning when I read my Bible. For now, would you do me the service of just turning away? Her need outweighs her fear of God. Imagine a woman who's out for coffee with a friend. She says something funny and mildly sarcastic about her husband. She senses a little bit of sympathy from across the table. She says something else and feels a reciprocal dynamic. For the next 90 minutes, she roasts her husband at the stake of criticism. But even if this conversation is going on, another one is simultaneously taking place. Don't look at me, God, okay? This is the dynamic of the spiritual life. Sinners sin, sinners hide, and they try to cover themselves. We do everything to avoid the truth. We suppress it, we discount it, we deny it, we ignore it. A person who does not have authentic faith loves the darkness and he embraces things that God opposes. He chases after experiences that appeal to his lust. Because the mind of a man who has not been born again minds the things of the flesh. Romans 8 tells us that. And if you want a grocery list of what happens, the works of the flesh, if we just flip back to Galatians chapter 5, listen to this in verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like... I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's plain. Very plain. As believers, though, we are drawn to the light. We diligently pursue the truth, and we live the truth. When Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island was a young child. He was looking out his front window one evening. He was fascinated by the old-fashioned lamplighter who was running around with a ladder and a torch, lighting all the gas lamps in town. And as a boy, Stevenson was intrigued by the work of this old lamplighter who went about with this ladder and torch, setting the lights ablaze 
in the streets. One evening in Edinburgh, Scotland, as young Robert stood watching with childhood fascination, his parents heard him exclaim, Look, look, there's a man out there punching holes in the darkness. That's us. That's believers in Jesus Christ who are plugged into the light. We are punching holes in the darkness and Satan doesn't like it. You are to be a glow worm for God. I am to be a glow worm for God. Punching holes in the darkness of Satan's kingdom. And that's why we need to cling together and be a big light bulb for God. Encouraging one another, praying for one another. We're on the same side. We're on the same team trying to punch holes in the darkness. And as we pray and plan for the Super Summer Jam this summer, we are attempting to punch holes in Satan's kingdom with the help of God. With the help of God. We're drawn to the light. Let me just quickly mention the last one. Habit number three. For a believer in Jesus, this should be evident in our lives. Accepting my purpose in life. That sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I can accept that. What do you mean? What's what's the big deal? Really? Well, maybe you don't know all the purposes. Maybe I should say purposes in life. Because I don't think any of us know what God is going to call upon our faith to do in the next six weeks or six months or six years. I don't know what kind of trials I'm going to face. I don't know what kind of hardships I'm going to face. I don't know what kind of difficulty I'm going to face. But I know the God who says he's going to walk with me. To accept and fulfill our purpose in life will require a humble heart. And I think there's three keys to having a humble heart in this passage. As John shares about Jesus baptizing. Remember John? He says, Jesus, his, John's disciples come to him and says, you know, Jesus has got a lot more people over there than you do. What's up with that? Could you sense the jealousy and envy? And John, your, 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 your impact and influence is going down and that guy's is going up. And man, we want to be loyal to you. But what about that guy over there? Remember you baptized him? And, and John says, yes, he must increase. And I must decrease. I am fulfilling my purpose in life. My purpose was to point people to the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. My purpose was just that. So when John lost his head, he had no problem. He fulfilled his purpose. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Accepting our purpose in life. Do we know what it is and are we seeking to live it out for God? If we are, we have an authentic faith. So let me give you the three, three keys. Number one, awareness of God's sovereignty. Now that's another big word. So let me just tell you, sovereignty, when we say God is sovereign, we're saying that he is the ruler of the universe. He has the right to rule any way he chooses. In his wisdom, in his power, in his grace. And it also means that God is in complete control of his universe, of his world. Does it mean I'm going to understand everything that happens in it? No, I don't. 
But I am reminded of all the evil in it and reminded that this is not heaven. I'm not home yet. We're not home yet. We accept the sovereignty of God, which means I have physical features, my height, the length of my arms, the color of my hair, the color of my skin, my adaptability, my aptitude for learning, my bank account, my education, my athletic ability, my farming ability, my business acumen is all because of the sovereignty of God. You say, well, I'm a great athlete. Yeah, but who gave you your quickness? Who gave you jumping ability? Who gave you the length of your arms? Who gave you peripheral vision? Is that something you developed? I don't think so. It's God-given. Who gave you eye-hand coordination? You? You better think again. Came from the sovereignty of God. So we have a purpose to fulfill. Our likes and dislikes, carpentry skills, relational skills, ability to grow crops or grow a business or make wise investments. That is God-given, my friend. Secondly, we need to have an accurate view of self. As soon as my view of myself gets skewed and I begin to get a big head or think that I am really something, God is going to cut us down to size. We need to have an accurate view of ourself. We get an inflated ego and we begin reading the press clippings and think, I'm really something. And John recognized, he says, you know what? He must become greater. I am decreasing. So he can increase. That should be the attitude of someone with authentic faith. Not look at me, look at him. Look what he can do. Look what he said. Look who he is. And I have an accurate view of myself because in John 15, 5, he said, apart from me, you can't do very much. (laughs) No, actually, he said, you can do nothing. I can't even draw my next breath unless God gives it. So who do I think I am? Who do you think you are in relationship to it all? When we see John's humility, it's incredible. His humility in pointing people to Christ and saying, you know what? That's the plan. (laughs) I'm just fulfilling my purpose in life in pointing people to Jesus. The third one, a focused attention on Christ. A focused attention on Christ. Look, he says in verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. They would say oftentimes there would be an attendant outside after the bride and groom got together and consummated their marriage and they would then hear the voice of the groom. And he's saying, hey, I'm the friend. I heard the voice, and that brings joy to me because he's fulfilling the purpose of God. His function was to serve the bridegroom. It's our function as well. Let's stand for a word of prayer.
I would just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And as you do, would you contemplate what kind of faith you have this morning? Do you have an authentic faith or a titanic faith? Temporary, short-lived, brief, transitory faith. Or is it authentic? Three habits for someone who has authentic faith. He exercises confidence in Jesus Christ. He lives by the truth. And he accepts his purpose in life. If you're here this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask you, where do you stand in your relationship with God? Do you realize God sent his only son to die for you and for me? To pay the penalty for our sin. Not so you could make your own way, but so that you could choose his way. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ with authentic faith to abide in Jesus, to live by his words, to give him control of my life, not even knowing where I'm going except I'm following Jesus. That's what he calls us to do. If you haven't done that, I would invite you to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, forgive you of your sin, and make you a new person right there in your seat. And would you have the courage to tell me afterwards that you invited Jesus into your life this very day? Would you do that? Would you stop by and tell me? Interrupt me? (laughs) I'm talking to someone and say, I need to talk to you when you're available. Please do that. For those of us who do know Jesus, we need to continually walk in truth and accept our purpose in life and have confidence in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check out our website at www.bchweb.org or on our Facebook page, Bethesda Church of Huron.